the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, Episode 36. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning. How is your week, my friend? It is better. (laughs) Yeah. It is better. Yeah. It is better. Better than it was. Yeah. I was in some thick weeds for a few days. Uh, Yeah. I guess a few days. I guess the, the meat of it was only a few days, but I feel much better now. It's one of those just inexplicable, just like probably hormonal uh, depressions, I guess, is what the proper word would be for it. The clinical, technical word. Um, But uh, I feel much better now. So um, I did some things. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Your voice, just the, the lilt in your voice. I mean, yeah, you sound better. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I didn't feel like myself, so I'm not surprised I didn't sound like myself. So, um, it is good to be back (laughs) on this side. Uh, did you do anything to kind of jolt yourself out of it or any tools? You know, looking back, yeah, I thought, thinking about it, I, um, talked about it. God, I think that that right there just helped me immensely. I don't know why we feel like we have to keep those things under wraps. I mean, the first person I told was my husband. It's like, I'm not good. This is, I'm not good. I'm not in a good place right now. And, um, so I told him first, but I don't know why we feel like we have to keep it all together all the time. Um, I guess we just do moms do women do wives do. Um, and, uh, so I told him and then I reached out, you know, the next thing for me, the next easiest place for me to reach out is the internet because it's just right at our fingertips. You know, I couldn't shower. So I barely left the house for a few days except to take the kids back and forth to school. And, um, so then I reached out in our Facebook group and just got some good ideas, responses, resources. Um, so that was probably because you forget what to do. I mean, you know, which makes me now I feel like I should start to be more proactive because another one will come. Um, 
but um, when you're in the middle of it, you forget what to do. You don't even, you can't even see that there are options in life at all. Like, should I shower or not shower? I don't know. What do I feel like today? It's not even like that. You don't even see any options presented in front of you that way. And um, so I just kind of completely forgotten what to do. So someone suggested acupuncture and I was like, oh yeah, I, I love acupuncture. It makes me feel amazing. I haven't had any in months. And I just had, I couldn't, I, my brain just wasn't working. And so, yeah. So after that, then the next day I took a shower and I walked over to my acupuncturist who's right in my neighborhood. Nice. And, um, and that was, yeah, that was all just like the beginning of, you know, and then I, then I kind of like made my way out. (laughs) Mm. So I've never um, had acupuncture. So is that, oh, well, first of all, I I don't know. I don't know enough about, um, Eastern medicine to tell you exactly what it's doing to me physically, but it does something to you physically. I mean, it's obviously been practiced for centuries. So, and there's a reason for it. Um, but yeah, it is, it makes me feel, I've always described it. It almost makes me feel like I've had a, a Valium or something. It just kind of like, and I don't take, you know, any, even prescription pills anymore. So it just makes you, it just kind of evens you out a little bit. Um, but then they also build on each other. So I'm going back, you know, and, and if you stay consistent, I mean, some people go, uh, every week, some people go a couple of times a week. If you have something physical, like a physical, um, ailment, like your shoulder pain or back pain or whatever, it can work on that, Mm -hmm. but it can work on things that you just can't point to like, you know, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And my acupuncturist is a woman and she's my age. And I think that that also, because we can relate to each other without hardly even talking. And so she knew exactly where to go and how to get to work on me. Yeah. It was really, it was really wonderful. And so, and they build on each other is what I, I don't think I finished saying that. So when um, session will build on the next session. So if you get like a chunk of four in, you know, a four week period, mm-hmm. um, then you really can start to feel the benefits. Um, I know it's not magic, but it kind of feels that way. <laughs> so I'm curious. So I have no frame of reference for acupuncture other than what you've shared with me that you've gone before. And that's, that's really it. So is it, is it, pricey? Is it, is it out of pocket? Is it, uh, it depends. Your okay. I think it, I think it depends. I think that they're, well, see insurance is so wacky now what right. they cover and what they don't. I think that, um, there was a time where you could, uh, you could get your insurance companies to pay for, for acupuncture, especially if it was like a, a specific pain again, that you can point to like, back pain, shoulder pain. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's the case anymore. Um, I go to a place that is called, um, it's a community acupuncture place. And so, you know, this isn't for everybody. If you are the kind of person I think that 
really needs privacy in that kind of situation, it probably wouldn't be for you. Um, but a community acupuncture place, what it looks like is a room that's super quiet that has like 12 comfy, comfy loungy chairs in it and pillows and blankets and stuff. And so you actually will sit in a room and the acupuncturist will come by and kind of whisper to you, or you have a little session beforehand to talk about what you want to work on if she doesn't, if your acupuncturist doesn't already know. And then, um, and so, yeah, so you're in a room with a bunch of other people. I mean, sometimes you have to deal with, you know, the guy next to you is like snoring because you fell asleep, you know, that, that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, but usually, I mean, I have no problem with being in a room, you know, it's not like you're naked or anything, (laughs) you know, you put your clothes on, you know, you just have to, usually if you're wearing pants, you kind of have to roll your pants legs up and roll your sleeves up a little bit so that the needles can get to where they need to go. Um, but that takes the price down significantly. Um, it's only, uh, her sessions that way are only $28. So it's super affordable. Now, if you set up, uh, appointment with a private practitioner and especially if you set up an appointment with somebody who not only is um you know I don't know what kind of uh, certifications or degrees or whatever and I know that there's different levels but if you set up an appointment I think with a a, a private appointment with um a, a Chinese doctor I think those can get more expensive um just because their level of expertise might be higher and they also can sort of prescribe to you, um, herbs and that kind of thing as well to go hand in hand with your acupuncture. I mean, there's a whole rabbit hole you can, you can go down. Okay. So there's so many rabbit holes lately for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just an exhausted rabbit going through all these holes lately. Okay. I'm writing this down. I'm going to put it down there. I've never, but I think community, if your city, you know, even smaller cities, I think, but if your city has a community acupuncture place, that's a great place to, to put, dip your toe in because, um, and, and a lot of times too, if it's your first appointment, they'll set up, um, a pre, like a 30 minute pre, you know, meeting before you just like Mm -hmm. jump in the room with people and you're just whispering. But, um, so you can kind of address you know, what you, what your issues are, what you want to work on. But yeah, I've had her poke me for all kinds of things. In fact, laying there, I remembered that I came to her about five years ago. I had completely forgotten this, that I came to her about five years ago in tears, requested that we have a 30 minute, um, talking session before, because I wanted her to help me cut back on drinking. I had completely forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think it was after a thing. It must've been after I had the panic attack probably because that was the one that was, even though many other things had happened that, that really scared me. And, um, I still though, I I don't think I ever told her I wanted to quit. You know, I just said I, I wanted to cut back because quitting just never felt like an option. Right. But you remembered that while you were sitting in the chair. This I remembered that while I was laying there. Yeah, I had completely forgotten that I had done that. Yeah. So she's helped me with that. Um, tummy issues, you know, all kinds of things. So. Oh, well, I'm glad you found some relief. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Me too. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Relief. That seems to be the name of the game. I've been, um, our friend Hillary once gave me a phrase about when I was doing things like you need to front load your, your, your emotional sobriety, basically. Mm, mm-hmm. You need to front load that when you go to these situations and I would go places and have anxiety. Um, and she would just say, you should front load it with, you know, by doing this or that, or whatever your routines are, or whatever things can calm you down before you go into that situation. So like, before, like before when we used to preload with alcohol, before you go to a party, like the same totally. type of thing, right? Totally. With crystals and mantras and meditation, which, you know, never would have entered my mind before. But I had to totally use that over this, you know, over the Thanksgiving holiday. And now we're here almost in the middle of December and I'm just going to have to just pull out everything I got, you know, I'm trying to just kind of maintain a level of sobriety. So for me, that, that emotional sobriety, which means, you know, therapy and meetings and reaching out to you and sober women and texting and, you know, just trying to, uh, maintain a level of, uh, calm. And I did that successfully over the Thanksgiving holiday, although I did feel a little bit of a crash, afterwards of trying to hold it all together. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this month, December is such an already, you know, charged month anyway. I'm just going to have to be working overtime. So what what I did is I was supposed to be releasing this ebook on uh, December 1st, which I did not do. Um, And I gave myself a little, I cried uncle, I guess is what I did. And I was like, whose deadline is this? Oh, yeah, it's mine. No, no one. <laughs> oh, no one else's. Okay, so I'm the one. Guess you can change it. What? Okay. <laughs> and that's what I did. And so I got so much work done towards this project that I want to release. Um, and it was good that I had that, you know, December 1st deadline kind of looming. So that definitely motivated me. Um, but I gave myself permission and off the hook, uh, you know, hall pass, I guess, to try to have it done by January 1st. Um, but I'm not making any promises. <laughs> um, I would like that very much to release this project, on it, this little tiny thing I'm working on. And, but I'm also going to realize that I'm not going to do it at the expense of my family and of my sanity this month. That's, That's a just, good, can't happen. <laughs> mature adult decision. Oh, thank you for saying that, Sandra. I think I needed to hear that. <laughs> I need to hear that out loud. I've been saying it to myself in my head, but <laughs> Validation, the ba- the pat on the back. I needed that. So, thank you. Yep. Yeah. Well, we should get going into our yeah. intro here for our awesome interview today. Yeah, yeah, we should. Today, I mean, speaking of uh, making your own choices and being the captain of your own ship, we are talking to Becky Vollmer. So excited. I know. She's so lovely. So good. Um, so she is a mom and a yoga teacher and a writer, and, um, she lives in St. Louis, Missouri, and she is sober for sure. And, um, she, on her website, when I was reading a little bit and kind of getting up to speed about, you know, how she encapsulates what she does. Uh, she, uh, I, I read, I lifted her bio from there and just said that she is living proof that despite feeling otherwise, we are not stuck in circumstances and patterns that neither serve nor define us. Her blog and website, You Are Not Stuck, um, shares her raw insights and aha perspective to spark change, 
ranging from everyday breakthroughs to radical long-term personal transformation. And she shares a lot of that today on the pod. Um, her writing empowers people to pursue the lives they dream of instead of the lives they feel stuck in. And she is a firm believer that you are not stuck. Right, right. Like no matter where you are, you have a choice. Um, continuing with that, her job is translating the lessons learned along her own journey, which is, she talks, she'll talk a lot about that in the interview, um, so far to help others find their confidence, confidence to realize that they too have choices. They are strong. She's made choices and changes to get closer to the life she wants and believes that you can too. And her story is very, uh, inspiring. She's had, she talks about three significant times where she felt stuck in her life and, um, she, she pivoted, she, she made changes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's super inspiring. I met her in New York, which we touch on. And I just, um, I feel like I've known her for a really long time. Um, there's something about like just other people in sobriety, you just kind of galvanize and kind of quickly conform, um, relationships if you gel you know if you have there's if there's something there it can you know it's not with everyone that's sober right of course Mm -hmm. but there's just something kind of when you when you meet someone you know um I want what she has that's Mm -hmm. how I felt when I met Becky she wants what I have that kind of wisdom and calm and get shit done attitude that she has like I liked that Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And she mentions also, um, and you can find it on her website too, youarenotstuck.com, that she is hosting a, a night of yoga on New Year's Eve in St. Louis. So yeah. you, I think she still has um, openings available for that. So um, you can go to her website and check that out if you are in the St. Louis area. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, you are not stuck on Instagram, on Facebook, and that's her website name. So that you guys can go check her out. If you can't, um, if you're at your desk, you know, and you can't listen to the whole episode right now or something, you can go check out her website or, or follow her on social media. She's a delight. And I'm just so, so happy that she decided to come on the show with us and talk about this. Yes. So enjoy. All right. Enjoy Becky. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, ladies. How are you? Good morning. I am good this morning. Yeah, I'm good too. What's going on? What's going on with you in St. Louis? What's it like over there? It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, but only in my house because it's still, it's been crazy warm. It's been 60, 70, 75 degrees, but I have a little, I have a Christmas tree problem. I have a a little house, but I have four Christmas trees, one in my bedroom, one in each of my kids' bedroom, and then a big one in my living room. So I've been up to my eyeballs. It's it's ridiculous. But I've been up to my eyeballs in pine cones and icicles and garland and fighting with pre-lit Christmas trees. But it's it's good. They're all lit now, and I'm really happy. (laughs) Did your family do that? Was that like a family thing to put the trees in the rooms, or is that all you? I think that's all me. I don't think they had the same <laughs> obsession. Um, well, you know, I should take that back. My mom's my mom's a little obsessed with Christmas trees. If she could, I think she would probably leave some sort of tree up all year long and maybe just 
maybe just have it with simple white lights. And in the fall, she could decorate it with some oranges and reds. And in the spring, mm-hmm. she could put some forsythia and red buds in there. I don't know. She, she'd probably keep it going all year if she could. I love that idea. Uh, I have a question. Do you, are you one of those kind of moms that invites your children to please help decorate? Or are you like, uh, <laughs> please don't? Please don't. Do you do it while they're at school? <laughs> I totally do it while they're at school. I would pay a babysitter to take them to the other side of town so yeah. that I could decorate my Christmas trees in peace. And then it's, it's it's awful. It's I don't know. Or is it? I don't know. At least we admit it and acknowledge it. I actually have a tremendous amount of sheepish guilt around it because especially my little one, she's eight. My big one is 10. And I don't think they've ever been allowed to help me with the Christmas tree. (laughs) And just the other day, my little one came in and I said, go look at the Christmas tree. And she went in and she said, you did it without me. And I had to put on a sad face like, a surprise face like, oh, did you want to help me? When on the inside, I'm thinking, damn right, I did it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and Maybe I this year, year I'll... and the next year. Uh-huh. And the next year. I know. I mean, my son now is too old. He doesn't, he likes to be around and watch, but he doesn't necessarily want to help. I don't know. He's 14, but my daughter is nine and she is so much like that. I was just laughing this morning because um, she, last year, she bought herself with her own money an elf on the shelf. With her own money. And so, you know. Does she move it herself? uh, Yeah, no. (laughs) No. She bought you an assignment is what she did, Sandra. Exactly. So she's like such a Scorpio that, you know, she like has the, she has the idea of, of, of Chloe's perfect world. And she would just like it if everybody would just please get on board with that. (laughs) But she, yeah, she's going to. Uh, it just made me think, maybe I should just buy her her own little tree and put it in her room and go, here you Ooh. go. You just, you just For her and the elf to, to play with. All, yeah, her and the elf yeah. can take care go of it all month long. Down. Yeah. Well, I have to say the own Christmas tree in the room, it, I mean, it accomplishes a lot. It's, you know, it's a nice aesthetic and it, it keeps them in the, in the holiday spirit. I had a very proud mama moment the other night when I took the trees up to their room and I, I usually just store them in the basement and then I haul them up when when it comes time to put them up. And I was in charge of fluffing. And it's so funny that, you know, they, I have, okay, so I have the mind of a 12 year old. And when, so when I think of fluffing the tree, that's not entirely what I'm thinking of. But they don't know that, so I just get <laughs> Okay, right. right. Yeah. I mean, they say, who's going to fluff the tree? And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll gladly take that job. Excuse anyway, me while I fluff the tree. <laughs> These branches are so long. No, I'm kidding. Um, anyway, they took off all of the ornaments, and God love them. They put them all in a pile in the middle of the floor, and they, you know, they made a pool of both of the ornament or all of the ornaments that were on both of the trees. And they said, "Why don't we? Why don't we take turns picking?" And they would. So Josie, my big one, she picked a couple, and she said, "Oh, I'd like these two. And so. Now, Julia, it's your turn. And Julia took a couple and they started getting down toward the end. And there was a big, like a big nutcracker one. And Josie said, Julia, you can have that one. I know you really like that one. And Julia said, well, thank you. Why don't you take these three? And I'm sitting there thinking, first of all, who are these kids? Because they weren't (laughs) like that earlier in the day. Like, did they take something when I wasn't looking? But I just sort of realized like, wow, they do see the, you know, for all of the talk about, Hey guys, there's enough to go around and, 
you know, don't call dibs and don't be grabby. Like I saw it in action that they actually are hearing this. And I was just sort of patting myself on my back and feeling good that they were like nice, young, nice, young, sharing little girls. That's your Christmas present, Becky. That's it. It kind of felt like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, my mother was probably never friends with a woman like your mother. I'm imagining because my mother, um, we took the Christmas tree down on Christmas day or the day after. And I almost spit out my coffee through my nose. Yeah. Christmas and, day. All right, kids. But, <laughs> but I got to say, cause I might, some might think that I would decorate the tree like you, Becky, and that I would control the tree and that I would, I don't. And I take it down the day after Christmas boxing day, it all goes away. I don't even have anything out yet. We have one tree, no other adornments in the house. And I let my son decorate it, which he is begrudgingly doing. But there's something about the holidays. I just, especially in sobriety, I've had to pare it down because it just was such a trigger for me. Um, but yeah, the day after, some of my friends were like, uh, just appalled by me. Like, what do you mean you take it down on Boxing Day? <laughs> I'm like, well, I got to get ready for the new year. I got to get ready for, for my house and my whole world to be sparkly new again. <laughs> Can we still be friends, Becky? Huh. Can well, we... It kind of makes me want to come out and have an intervention. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that's probably just me wanting to control you because I know better for you. I'm happy. <laughs> and you should be happy by leaving your Christmas tree up until March 1st. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take that intervention if you ever want to come out, Becky. You know it. <laughs> well, you, you, on my note, I'm coming. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. When is this airing? I'm not coming. I'm not coming. It's a, it's a surprise. I'm not coming. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll be quiet about that. Um, okay. So let's talk. I want to talk briefly just how you and I met because it was just really fluky and meant to be, I think. Um, and since I'm trying to embrace all the woo of things lately, I think it's kind of, it was a woo moment in New York when we met. Was that She Recovers, right? It was a woo moment. It was at that amazing gathering, She Recovers. That was what, in May of 2017, Mm -hmm. just this past May? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Wow, how is that even possible that that was just in May? I know. Because we've been friends for at least 25 years. Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, yeah, and I... um, I had arranged to, I, I'm, I'm a notorious uh, cheap ass, and so I didn't want to spring for a hotel. And I was going to stay with a friend of mine um, in the city, in Manhattan, and I was just going to hoof it or train it or cab it down to uh, the financial district where our big party was. Until I realized, oh my gosh, it's going to take me like 45 minutes or an hour, and that's a little out of the way. And so I started putting feelers out like, hey, anybody want to anybody let me sleep on their couch for free? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, a couple of people raised their hand and I just went with the first one. She said, sure, absolutely. The more the merrier. And then I didn't realize until I got there when she really meant the more the merrier, because I think I was like the the fifth person, fourth or fifth person who was going to be in that room. And it just felt awfully crowded and I didn't want to put other people out. And so I went back to the other people who had said, sure. And that was Tammy and Natalie. And I, and I just sort of walked up to her. I'm like, um, you did that. Does that offer still stand? Like, really? Could I crash on your couch? And they said, well, actually 
Sandra on a stick couldn't come. <laughs> Hillary on a stick couldn't come. So we have an extra space. Um, sure, come and stay with us. And so the reference to you guys being on a stick, Tammy, and all of her creative beauty. Did you make those? No, no, no. That's all Natalie. That's all Natalie. That's all Natalie. I just toted them around everywhere and gave them photo ops. <laughs> yeah. It was Hilarious. maybe one of the more ridiculous things I'd ever seen. Yeah, you- two women walking around with, you know, big <laughs> head sized pictures of their friends' faces on these sticks and then like posing with them. I'm <laughs> thinking, these two are just nutty enough to be my type. And so I did crash on their couch and um, we had a grand old time. We really did. We, did. we were like long lost college roommates reunited and we talked about everything under the sun. Yes. No fences, no, no walls just lots and lots of honesty and laughing and crying and hugging. Mm -hmm. And so I made a couple of sisters that weekend for Mm. sure. Yeah, it was awesome. It was such a great, it was a delight. I mean, we were sad that Sandra couldn't be there and we were bummed out that Hillary was sick. And um, when you walked up to me at the um, event on Friday night, you know, we're all really kind of right? We're like anxiety messes sometimes and we're uncomfortable in places. And Becky's like, so is that, is that offer still stand? I'm like, well, I got to check with Natalie. And of course Natalie was fine. And then Becky's like, can we like make this happen? Like right now? <laughs> I'm like in the middle of the event. I'm like, well, like right this second, you know, we were all just super uncomfortable, like trying to um, get comfortable, you know? And, and Becky's, Becky's comfort, I imagine was like, let's go get situated then that'll make me feel yeah. a little bit more, you know, grounded and all of that. Absolutely. So you could tell, you could totally tell that about, if there's one thing I don't like, it's having, um, it's just having sort of loose ends, untied yeah. ends. I mean, I, I make people crazy with the calendar and my need to schedule, you know, two months in advance. What are we going to be doing next Wednesday night at 7 PM? <laughs> you know now. This is why and you're my soulmate. <laughs> This is why I'm in recovery. <laughs> I mean, it's this need to control everything. So right. that I just feel safer and happier. And I, I just don't like the unresolved questions. Yeah. And so I find myself on it. I know this is a character flaw. I just, I'm an incredible nag until the questions are answered far more prematurely than they even need to be answered. But I find that stability and that, you know, just that, locking in of plans to be so comforting I can carry on then with whatever is next when I know that you know the next little bit of my life is secure you're controlling what you can control yeah right I mean because you can't control everything but but the little things that you can it does help you feel probably a little bit more stable yes but boy is it you know that wisdom to know the difference because you know those of us who are really needing that that element of control it is really difficult for us to know the difference because i think we have that overinflated sense of well i can manage this and i should manage this and there's a big difference between knowing what you can manage and what you should manage because i might be able to manage everything but sometimes it's just not my it's not my place in fact most of the time it's not my place and i still struggle with trying to recognize the distinction between those two I had never heard the term, um, we'll, we'll get later when, uh, when we talk about marriage counseling, but 
it was in the process of marriage counseling with my now ex-husband that I learned the term over-functioning and under-functioning. Are you guys mm. familiar with that? Mm-mm. My a colleague, a colleague told me that I over-functioned recently at my last job. Like, why are you over-functioning? I was like, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's, it's a very learned behavior. And, you know, some people in who are prone to under-functioning, you know, bring out that over-functioning in us or alternately those of us who are just so good at being responsible for everybody else and everything else just everything that we touch even if it really isn't ours to manage we can create the sense of underfunctioning in other people hmm. so i mean it, i don't i don't know that i could give you the psychological textbook definition of it but it's it's pretty clear on its face you know overfunctioning is somebody who just operates at such a high level of trying to control every detail that it re- it makes the other people around them not have to live up to everything that they could or should be doing. And they get to skate. They get to underfunction. It's a great and disservice. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a tremendous disservice. Yeah. And I saw it manifest. You know, I used to get frustrated. I remember... Um, saying to my husband once, you know, do you realize that in the seven years that we've had children, you have never once gotten a babysitter. You have never once made a plan for us, you know, to go out on a Friday night or a Saturday night. And I'm thinking, why did you not, why did you not do that? Why did you not take that upon yourself? Don't, don't you love me? (laughs) No, it's because you did it. You would do it. (laughs) It's because I did it two months in advance. You never had Mm -hmm. the chance. Poor guy. Never had a chance (laughs) to, you know, to dust off those chops because I had always taken care of that because that satisfied my need for security. Yeah. Oh, I know that. You know what I find find amazing about this whole conversation is because I am not that way at all. I love to just hang out in the question. I, I, that's my, my, I love paradox. I love to just sort of be slightly tethered and float around. But what I find amazing about this whole conversation is once we have a little sober time that we can even know these things about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, because when you know that you know them, then you can actually take some action on them or not you know you can you can change maybe work on changing parts of of yourself that you you know would like to change but yeah these were things I could not see when I was still drinking I I just I didn't have the ability to to step out far enough to be able to see the bigger picture exactly well well, let's get into let's get into a little bit of why I wanted to have you on the show Becky and not we wanted to have you on the show um Sandra had posted um in our secret Facebook group for the podcast um the Elizabeth Gilbert's essay not this and you left a really nice comment on there um about how you remembered exactly the first time when you read that post kind of you're not this moment and so from chatting with you and knowing you, I just was hoping you could take us through maybe your not this moments and maybe help our listeners understand maybe your journey with not drinking or a couple of other things that you might want to share with us. Do you mind doing that? I don't mind at all. That's, um, I, I remember the first time that I read that and I just broke down in all sorts of tears because, um, that essay spoke to me so deeply because I was in the middle of a not this moment and I just didn't have the vocabulary to articulate it like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, looking back, I can see that I've had a number of not this moments. And I think so many times we have to get 
something within us has to click on what it is we don't want before we're able to get clear on what it is we do want. Um, because so often we just can't, you know, we can, we can sort of feel that, that, that uneasiness or that unsettledness and knowing that something isn't right. And sometimes that's a really subtle feeling. And sometimes that is just a loud screaming voice at us, but we don't know what the alternatives look like, you know? And so we can't picture, you know, I could trade in this scenario or situation that is, gnawing at me or smothering me or even slightly killing at me, you know, we almost can't see, Hey, I've got the power to trade that in for something else. But we just, we get, we get a hold of that. This isn't working mentality. And then all of a sudden we can gravitate toward, you know, what it is we do want. So I would say my first, Oh gosh, I've had many. I mean, I've had many. I've had, I'm a person who's had lots of jobs, lots of career changes. I've been married and divorced twice. Um, I was somebody who thought I didn't want to have children and now I have two amazing daughters. So I've had lots of not this moments, but I guess for the purpose of this conversation, maybe there are three that would sort of weave into my uh, recovery story. Um, the first one was job related and, um, I had spent a num- my, my professional background. I'm a, I was trained as a as a newspaper journalist, so I spent a number of years as a reporter and an editor, and then I moved into uh, doing communications for political campaigns. I did some you know, grassroots organizing for U.S. congressional campaigns, and then I moved into um, public relations. And I had the enormous pleasure to work for. Um, the world's largest PR firm that happens to be headquartered in my hometown of St. Louis. And, uh, I worked there for almost a dozen years and, um, enjoyed a whole lot of learning. Um, I used to, you know, I, I came out of college with a bachelor's degree and I always thought that, uh, that professional experience was my, was my graduate degree. I mean, I got my PhD in PR by working at this firm. Um, I was surrounded easily by some of the best talent in the industry, got to work on challenging, you know, client issues and work for some of the biggest companies and brand names in the world. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it until I didn't, you know, it was working Mm -hmm. great until it wasn't. Um, and I think that the trigger point for that was the birth of my first child. Mm. And so, uh, I, I realized, um, I just was having a really hard time doing both. I was having a hard time, you know, giving a job 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week um, on a schedule that kind of didn't end. It wasn't just like a nine to five kind of thing. It was a 24 seven kind of thing. And then raise, you know, just have, have a baby. I mean, Mm -hmm. having a baby is not an easy thing. Or being the mom that you wanted to be, you know, I think that, uh, you can choose to be as, you know what I mean? You can choose to be uh, as present as you, as you can or want to be or how you divide your time. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted. No, I think that that's an important point. I mean, that's, that's a really important point. I didn't, I didn't like how it felt being Mm -hmm. the first kid to drop my daughter off at daycare. You know, I didn't like that she went, that she went to daycare at 10 weeks old. My father had had literally just died, um, mm. probably the week before after a couple year battle with cancer. 
um, took her, you know, put her in daycare at 10 weeks old and was right back at it, you know, pumping at my desk. And, you know, I'd be the last one to pick her up from daycare, you know, when they closed at six o'clock and then started charging you a dollar a minute. And that just didn't, it didn't feel good. It, 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 I felt stretched way too thin. Um, you know, that sense of mommy brain where you kind of can't string two sentences together. That mm-hmm. never left me. That that pregnancy brain never, ever left me. And it just, it only got worse to the point where I just felt like I was just bumbling through space all the time, unable to think, unable to counsel. You know, when I was one place, I felt like I needed to be at another, um, no matter what I was. And I just had that feeling all the time of who am I going to disappoint today? You know, am I going to disappoint my daughter? Am I going to disappoint my husband? Am I going to disappoint my colleagues, my clients, myself? You know, and that became very important, that notion of disappointing myself. And so um, after when she was about six months old, I moved to a part time position, which meant I went down to 40 hours a week. Mm, right. And, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and that was still there. I mean, that was incredibly challenging. Again, just that feeling of who am I going to disappoint? And I stayed with it for a number of years um, until about. I guess about, it was actually, it's coming up on five years now, five years, uh, in January. So next month, um, I went with a couple of girlfriends, uh, actually a girlfriend who lives here in St. Louis. We went out to San Francisco to visit, um, a girlfriend there and we were all colleagues and they were a few years younger than I was. Neither one had kids, um, still don't. And you know, I'd been in this role where I had technically been their supervisors, but they were just such dear, wise young women. Um, we were very, very close friends. And I remember walking on the on the beach one day there in San Francisco, looking up at the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and just lamenting to one of the you know one of the girls, like, I just, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. I just can't do it anymore. But I didn't know what else I could do. And I'm racking my brain. Like, how can I make this fit? Could I maybe move to a different function within the company? Could I, you know, could I work fewer hours even still? You know, how could I continue to make the square peg in the round hole fit? And at one point, uh, we're walking along the beach. And it was a Friday. And there were all these people on the beach. And I'm thinking, why aren't these people at work? Because I never took vacations. I was always working. And in particular, there was this young family, a man and a woman and a little boy. He looked like he was maybe two or three. And they were just on the beach and they were throwing a ball and he was chasing it. And they, the dad swooped him up and picked him up in the air. I mean, it was like a commercial. And they're laughing. And I'm looking at this and I just, I lost it. I just started bawling right there on the beach. I mean, sobbing pretty uncontrollably. And I said to my friend, that's what I want that right there, that's what I want. And she said, so go do it. And she, she looked at me in the eye and she said, you know, I'll never forget these words. If you're not happy doing what you're doing, just go do something else. Hmm. And I looked at her like (laughs) she had 25 heads, like, wait, like, wait, what, what? And she said it again. If you're not happy doing what you're doing, just go do something else. It's just and like she you said, need permission or something. Permission. Somebody to give exactly you permission. That. And she followed it up with, you know, if that doesn't work out, do something else again. Because you're smart, 
and you're marketable and you'll figure it out. Wow. Oh, you okay? I'm sorry for that big noise. <laughs> that was my cat jumping up on the mantle and knocking over the Buddha. Oh, that's very zen. <laughs> the Buddha's like, listen up. I got something to say. <laughs> Exclamation point. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I just remember looking at her and, and just, I got absolutely filled up with this sense of, oh my God, she's right. I don't, I don't. There's nothing that says I have to keep doing this. You know, just because I've been walking in this one direction for so long doesn't mean I need to keep walking. Like, I can stop. Hell, I can turn around. I could take a different path. I had, I realized in that moment that I had choices. And that sort of became what is now my mantra. You know, we all have choices in life. We just have to be brave enough to make them. Right. And in that moment, I got brave. And so we, <laughs> it gets a little funny from here. We walked across the Golden Gate Bridge and walked over to Sausalito and it was windy and it was lovely. And that's a really long walk. Um, I think it was about eight miles. And we sat down at this little restaurant in Sausalito overlooking the bay and we ordered a bottle of wine and uh, it was lovely. And I took a picture and I texted it to my husband and I said, you know, this is, we're having such a lovely time here in Sausalito. Chelsea says, hello, by the way, I think I want to quit my job. And I just like held my breath and hit send. <laughs> and then I'm waiting and all of a sudden I see like the three dots and I can see that he's typing back and I'm holding my breath to see what he's going to say next. And he says, uh, looks wonderful. Tell Chelsea, I said, hello, you're going to do what to your what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I called him and I said, yeah, I, I'm. I'm dead serious. I mean, we'd been talking about this for years. I mean, my little one at that point, you know, the one that I'd gone part-time with when she was six months old, she was five now. And mm. she had a three-year-old little sister, you know. So I stayed on for another five years, really suffering. And I said, yeah, I think I'm ready. And he said, well, come on home. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll put pen to paper. Uh, we'll drop a budget because we were two-income family. Um, and we will come up with plan B. I was like, okay, sounds good. All right. Talk to you in a couple of days. So I go on, I spend the next couple of days just like freaking the F out because, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to quit my job, you know, and they don't see it coming. Right. I'm a senior vice president. I'm partner track. You know, I manage all these clients and I'm just going to give my notice with nothing else in place. And I was so excited. And so I called him the day I was coming home and I'm like, yep, I'm, I'm still committed. Like I still, yep, I'm, I'm ready to do this. And he's like, all right, come on home, pen to paper, plan B. And that's when I was like, oh, I've been thinking about that. If we have to put pen to paper and if we have to make a budget that works, I'm not going to do it. You know, I won't do it because on paper, we don't, we won't have the money to do it. We won't be able to make our house payment. Right. So I'm going to ask you for a big giant favor will you just hold my hand and jump off this cliff with me? And we, and I promise you, we will make it work. And he was just silent on the other line. And I heard him, I, I literally heard him swallow hard and God love him. That man said, yes. Okay. Hmm. And so I flew back to St. Louis and the next morning I walked into my boss's office and I said, Hey, I've been doing some thinking. I think it's time for me to do something else. And so I'm ready to make a change. And he was like, oh, okay. Um, you know, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I don't really, I don't know yet. 
I don't have it entirely figured out, but I'd like to give you, I want to give you plenty of notice, transition all my clients. I'd like to give you 60 days notice. And he just looked at me and he's like, oh, you mean now? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I mean right now. And I gave my 60 days and I walked away and I didn't know what I was going to do next. Well, and now it was being the such most a pl- liberating moment. Being such a planner, that was pretty out of character for you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. And That's I huge. felt so brave, right? Because I left yeah. at that moment. I didn't think I'd, I don't think I'd ever done anything so brave as what I did in that moment. And for I look sure. back now at the other things that I've encountered and experienced in my life. And I'm just like, oh, silly girl, that was nothing. But at the time, that was everything. Wow. And it, it felt amazing. So you felt liberated. You felt totally badass in that moment. Badass is a really good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And what did your drinking look like during all of this? I'm really curious about that. I imagine that there's a pretty pretty big drinking culture in a, in a big the biggest PR firm in the in the United States or however you characterize sure. that. Sure. Yeah. And you know, I came out of newspaper reporting, which is a huge drinking culture, and you know, after that political campaigns, which is a big drinking culture, and how I supported myself in college was that I worked in bars. I was a bartender mm-hmm. and cocktail waitress. So very big um, drinking culture. But you know, for me that drinking culture extended way way back. Um, my dad was an alcoholic. Um, his dad was an alcoholic. You know, many of his siblings were alcoholics. And that was just, you know, that culture was all I knew from a very young age. So, you know, kind of a monkey see, monkey do kind of thing. I didn't, you know, the, the way I saw alcohol being consumed at my house, you know, in my, dad exam- my dad's example was, you know, Budweiser for breakfast, um, Chevis for lunch, more beer in the afternoon, and then a big nap, um, just all the time. And so whether the, you know, it, like in every setting, um, when I was a kid, my softball games, there would always be beer, um, family barbecues, lots of drinking, um, going on vacation, sitting in the airport, you know, it was just customary. You'd, you'd drink at the airport bar. You just, just drinking was absolutely everywhere in the house where I grew up. So I didn't know that there was anything abnormal about drinking all the time. So I started drinking very young, probably I started drinking when I was about 14, but I mean, I can remember being 16 in high school, um, you know, drinking Southern comfort and grape juice in the morning before school. You know, I can remember coming home from school in my, you know, Catholic schoolgirl red plaid skirt and, you know, 3.30 in the afternoon going to the refrigerator and having a long neck Budweiser. I just didn't know that there was anything wrong with it. And by that time, my parents were divorced and I lived only with my dad. So, you know, my poor mom, the first <laughs> she talks about hearing a story or she, she tells me the story of the day that I did just that, came to her house after school, still wearing my school uniform, driving with a Budweiser in my hand. And she, you know, her jaw just absolutely hit the floor. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, you know, I was, I was an everyday drinker, I think probably from my, I don't know, early twenties on. Um, and I drank, I drank mostly wine, mostly red wine, never much, no, never dark alcohol, little bit of, you know, white liquor, but mostly wine. 
And as I started to make a little more money, my taste in wine got a little better. And, um, you know, I probably, I mean, outside of being pregnant, I drank, I would say, a, close to a bottle of wine a day from my mid early 20s, mid 20s to just before I was 40 years old. Mm-hmm. How old were you when and you quit, Becky? I was 39. 39, okay. 39. And so, you know, a, a daily, a, you know, a daily drinker, just, you know, that sort of couple glasses, two or three glasses of wine every night. Um, if I had the chance at lunch, uh, absolutely. Um, traveling for clients, uh, you know, being out of town, you betcha. Um, you know, a great example, my husband and I, when we went on our honeymoon, we went to the Bahamas I packed a suitcase full of clothes. He packed a suitcase full of clothes. And then we had a whole third suitcase. This was pre 9-11 when you could still do this. That was just, um, we had 16 bottles of wine wrapped up for mm-hmm. a six-day vacation. And we drank them all. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I, and I never knew there was anything wrong with drinking alone. Um, I can remember being early 20s and uh, talking with a friend on the phone. This was when I lived by myself before I met my husband, lived in an apartment by myself. And, and, you know, I said I was pouring a glass of wine and she said, you're not drinking alone, are you? I was like, well, no, the cats are here. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) Of course not. The cats are here. It's not alone. But I didn't know there was anything weird about that. Yeah. Yeah. I never had anyone, yeah, anyone ever attack me accusingly of drinking alone. It's like, yeah, of course you drink alone. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Party of one. That's right. (laughs) I preferred that in the end. I was missing out. Yeah. I liked it in the end. I wanted to be all alone. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, Sandra, um, when I, so then when I quit, um, and all of a sudden I was home with my kids, um, my little one was just getting ready to start kindergarten. I had that whole summer before kindergarten with my kids all the time, uh, which was great. I finally got to be the mom that I wanted to be. Uh, I had started, I, I have, I've been practicing yoga, um, Gosh, it's been close to 18 years now. So by that time, you know, 13, 12, 13 years. And I had been teaching it for probably just on the side here and there, maybe six or seven years. And so I decided, well, just, um, you know, since I'm not working, I'll just pick up a few yoga classes here and there. That was my intention. But very shortly, I was teaching almost, I don't know, 15 classes a week regularly. Wow. So teaching yoga all the time, you know, never wearing a bra, only wearing yoga pants. I let my hair grow out and go curly. I was with my kids. You know, I had very little responsibility and my drinking went through the roof. I was happier than I'd ever been. I had everything I ever wanted, but then all of a sudden I didn't have any of the structure that Mm -hmm. prevented my drinking. Mm -hmm. So you know, what used to be, you know, coming home after work at, you know, I don't know, six or seven, let's say six thirty by the time I picked up my kid and then, you know, making dinner, having a glass of wine, you know, while I made dinner and then later after the kids were in bed. Well, that all of a sudden 
that time just started creeping earlier and earlier in the day. So then it'd be like, well, I've got time. I can start making dinner at four o'clock, which really meant it was just cocktail hour. Mm -hmm. And then once the kids were in school, I met a group of moms and um, we started getting together for Tuesday after school play dates. And we'd all take our kids over to one person's house. Everybody would bring a bottle of wine and I would usually bring two. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, oh, my God, just getting blitzed. Yeah. Getting mm -hmm. absolutely blitzed with a house full of kindergartners. Oh, yeah. I know it and, well. Yeah. Been there. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just, you know, I, I, realized, I realized then when I started kind of lying about my drinking, you know, kind of lying to my husband, you know, he'd come come home from work and I'd already had a couple glasses of wine or a few glasses of wine. I think that was maybe cute or funny the first couple of times, but I think he started to raise an eyebrow. So anyway, it just got just, it just sort of, it just got worse and worse and earlier and more. And for somebody who was already consuming a pretty decent amount of alcohol to, to for it just to be more, I just felt like it was wrong and it was off. And I, I had this fear that I was turning into my dad hmm. and I, I had tried for years and years, probably a good 10 years before that, to, to either slow down or stop drinking. And I didn't know the word for it until, until I got sober. I didn't know what moderating meant. But all of a sudden, that made a lot of sense to me. Like, oh, I'd been trying and failing miserably at, at the idea of moderating my drinking. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all those little deals you make with yourself, like, well, I'll only, you know, I'll only drink wine on the weekends or I'll only allow myself to drink if I go to the gym that day or, you know, I can only have a glass of wine after the kids are in bed and those kinds of things that just made your heart palpitate, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, I remember my kindergartner at that time, she drew, she drew a picture of the family. Uh, she drew a picture of everybody sitting at dinner and it showed, you know, plates in front of us and it showed drinks in front of us and it labeled everybody's drink. Um, Julia, baby Julia had milk and Josie had juice in her cup and mommy's cup was full of wine. And mm. that one, re I, I realized, oh my God, they know, like they notice, they know mm -hmm. what's in my cup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, not maybe the year before I had quit, um, I was up for partner and I didn't, I, I, I didn't make it. I didn't get partner and I was pretty beside myself. And, uh, I came home that day and I remember sitting at the table with the girls and, uh, sitting there at dinner. And I remember saying, um, be nice to mommy. Mommy had a bad day at work. Mommy's kind of sad. And I had this most illuminating conversation with my, she was then four, with my four-year-old. And Josie, Josie said, why are you sad? And I said, well, I didn't make partner. Oh, I said, I didn't, I didn't get a promotion that I wanted. And she said, what's a promotion? <laughs> and I said, uh, oh, no, she said, what? I said, I didn't make partner. And she said, what's a partner? And I said, it's a, it's a title at work. And I sort of realized when I heard myself saying that, like, oh, yeah, this, okay, that doesn't mean a whole lot. It's a title at work. And, and I said, it's a promotion. And she said, what's a promotion? And I realized, God, if I couldn't explain it to a smart four-year-old, that it really didn't matter. It did not fucking matter that I didn't make partner. Mm. 
But I was still so upset. And you know what she said to me? She said, Mommy, do you want me to get you a glass of wine? Oh, yeah. My, my stomach fell out, you know? Yeah. So they knew, and I knew, I knew that, I knew that I was turning into my dad. Hmm. And yeah. I'd had, I'd had this really remarkable conversation with my dad several years before. And it didn't, it didn't fully make sense to me until probably about, you know, this time in my life. And it was, I'd had, I'd had an experience, uh, at work when I, it was still earlier in my career, um, where I, you know, I was being farmed out to uh, a client and I was expected to work on site at the client's office and still at my own job. And I was kind of shuttling back and forth. It was about six block walk and I was absolutely miserable. I, I had never been more professionally miserable in my life. I mean, like there were, I remember saying to a colleague, like, I want to jump out this 19th story window. Mm. I remember saying, like, I don't want to go to this meeting tonight. I'd rather drive my car into a solid brick wall so I don't have to go. And I wasn't kidding, you know, but I didn't I don't think I fully understood what a cry that was. Um, But I found myself standing on a street corner, walking to the client's office and looking ahead. You know, the light turned green and the crosswalk turned white and I was supposed to cross the street busiest corner in downtown St. Louis and I I see the building in front of me and I can't take a step toward it and I look back over my right shoulder and I see my office behind me and I can't turn and take a step toward that I was absolutely frozen in that moment and I just I lost it and I started crying on the street corner and sobbing hysterically and I called my husband and I and, you know, I'm just, he, I'm practically undecipherable. And he's like, well, uh, you know, he worked about 45 minutes away. He's like, I can stop what I'm doing and come get you. Like, can you call somebody closer? You know, like you need help right now. And so I pulled myself together enough where I was able to call a colleague who in the middle of winter, God love her, ran out of the building without a coat, put her arm around me and guided me to the bank building behind us. And sat me down in the lobby and made an appointment, you know, called her therapist and made an appointment for me to go see that therapist like that day or the next day because I was having a nervous breakdown. I was having a panic attack. Mm. And um, I remember telling my dad about that incident. And man, he got, I mean, he was actively drinking. He never stopped drinking before he died. And he got really stern with me and he was not usually stern with me. And he was like, you need to get this shit fixed. You need to get it fixed and you need to get it fixed now. And I didn't understand then that he was saying, you need to get the anxiety fixed. You need to get the anxiety and the depression fixed so that you, so that it doesn't cause you to drink like it's caused me to drink. Mm-hmm. You need to get it fixed now so you don't end up like me. So you don't self- continue to self-medicate mm-hmm. yourself into, yeah, an alcoholic death. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that was very powerful. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the day that I decided... Um, Am I oversharing here? Is this no? No, I'm like wrapped with attention. Going. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. I'm, normally, I interrupt a lot. I'm trying to just take it all in. <laughs> but yeah, no, you, we want to know. Yeah, our listeners are, I'm sure, want to hear. You know, how do you make that decision when you're drinking like you're drinking, when you're feeling like you're feeling, and 
And then how do you stop? How do you get to, what's your not this for that? What's your, what moment, how did you get there? So my, my moment came um, in a yoga workshop. Um, your listeners might know the name Elena Brower, mm-hmm. um, who is a, a fabulous teacher from New York who is herself in recovery. Uh, I think her drug of choice was marijuana. And um, this was actually before she got sober, which I didn't know until later. Um, but she came to St. Louis and she did a two-day workshop, which happened to fall uh, on the weekend of my 10th wedding anniversary. And so this was 2015, February. I was married on Valentine's Day. So this would have hmm. been February 14th of 2015. And uh, in the Friday evening class, um, she was talking to us a lot about our ancestors and about our lineage and just sort of noting where we came from, who we came from, how the patterns from the past get carried on into the present and the future and the next generation. And, um, you know, this was a permission kind of moment, you know, where she was saying, you don't have to carry those things forward. And it was just a little seed that was planted that night. And I Mm. remember, you know, I remember how much that stuck with me. And so then the next day in the, in the Saturday practice, um, we're having a lovely practice. We're in this beautiful light filled room, you know, probably 75 or a hundred people around. And we're sitting there on our heels with our eyes closed, you know, leading into meditation. And she brings up that seed she'd planted the night before about our lineage. And, um, she says, just, Think about, you know, think about something that you've carried forward from your past. You know, maybe it was something, you know, a habit that your grandfather had or something that your mother did or, you know, something, something that you've carried forward, something that you wish you hadn't, something you do that you wish you didn't. And, you know, I'm sitting there with my eyes closed and the voice inside my head, oh my God, she has never screamed at me before, but she was screaming that moment and she screamed at me, you drink too much, you drink too much, you drink too much. And I started, I just started to cry. It was, you know, those sort of silent tears that just fall out of your eyes, like they practically leap out of your eyes. It's not an ugly cry. Your face isn't even moving, but the tears, the yeah. waterworks just come. Right. And my eyes were closed and these tears were just spilling out from behind my closed eyes. And Elena told us, now take your hands and kind of hold them together in front of you like an offering. And whatever that thing is, that thing you do too much, that thing you wish you didn't do, put it gently in your hands and hold it there as gently as you would hold a little kitten. And she said, and love that, love that thing. Hmm. And then lift it up and let it go. And I remember lifting up my hands toward the sky And it was like, I just let that thing fly out of my hands. Hmm. And it was the most, it was one of the most, I have chills now thinking about it. It was one of the most powerful moments in my life because all of a sudden it was that permission. I saw that I had a choice. I saw that I, you know, with all due respect to my lineage, I didn't have to carry that baggage forward. I didn't have to pass that on to my kids. I could choose. I just had to be brave enough to choose. 
And so we wrap up that practice and I'm shaken to the core and I meet my husband for lunch because my girls are, you know, off with my mom for the weekend because it's our 10th anniversary weekend. And we go to a restaurant and we order Bloody Marys and we drink the Bloody Marys and then we order wine and we're drinking the wine and I'm eating my whatever I'm eating and I start to sob and I'm saying, I need to tell you what happened in this class. I don't want I don't, you know, I told him the whole story and I was like, my thing is that I drink too much and I don't want to drink anymore. I desperately want to stop drinking, but I need your help. I need your help. I can't do it by myself. I can't have you sitting here drinking, you know, a bottle of red wine and me sitting there salivating over it and resenting the fuck out of you. And I, and I said, I hate to ask, but I need you to stop drinking with me and be my moral support. Wow. And I'm sobbing. People must have thought like he was divorcing me or something. In, <laughs> in the middle of this busy restaurant on a Saturday afternoon, I'm just, I've lost my mind. It feels and, like that, though. It feels, I mean, it's that major. It feels oh, like you so are major. divorcing something. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that had been my friend for forever, mm-hmm. my best friend. And my yeah. Identity, really. Yeah. You know, my identity was very, I was the wine drinker. Yeah. I was absolutely the wine drinker. So anyway, he says, okay. And I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's just proceed with our day as planned, which means we're going to go home. We're going to cook a really nice dinner. We had a couple of steaks. um, And we were going to have a very special bottle of wine that we had brought back from Napa a couple years before that we'd been saving in in our wine holder, whatever. And... uh, God love this man. He looked at me and he said, no. And he looked at my wine glass and he said, you've already had your last drink. Mm. And I just started to cry even harder. Mm -hmm. And he just held my hand Mm. and neither one of us has ever had another drink. Oh, wow. Yeah. That that's almost, we're coming up on, it'll be four years in February. Wow. So he, he stuck with it too. I mean, we don't have to talk about his drinking, whether he had a drinking problem or not, but that's just amazing that he took that commitment with you. Yep. Wow. So so you said that class with Elena Brower was on your anniversary, right? The weekend? The day after. The The day day after after my 10th wedding anniversary. Yep. Wow. That was 2014. So I left my job in January of 2013 and I quit drinking like 11 months later, February of 2015. Dude. Dude, yeah, it was great until it wasn't because it all went, it all fell to shit from there. I have because a... who knew that when you take away alcohol, married people might not like each other so much anymore. Hmm. And yeah. we went, you know, here yeah. we were trying to get sober, getting sober yeah. without any help. Like we didn't do any program. We didn't reach out to anybody. I didn't talk to anybody. I white knuckled that bastard and... You know, it was very interesting watching the difference between the way the two of us handled it. It was torture for me. I mean, absolute torture. My Right now, I'm salivating at the idea of wine. I'm almost mm. four years sober, and I'm still having that Pavlovian response yeah. to the idea of wine. My mm. mouth is watering. Mm. Dave never had that. Mm. He never had that. And I remember talking to him a couple months after we'd stopped drinking And I was just like, you know, why isn't it this hard for you? I'm like, don't you think about it all the time? Like, don't you think about it several times a day, like probably 10 or 12 times a day? And he just looked at me and got all wide eyed. And he was like, no. 
And that's when I realized that, you know, there are people who might drink too much and then there are alcoholics. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was different. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't like him. I wasn't one of those people who could take it or leave it as easily as he could. He, yeah. Some people don't have the mental obsession, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's the difference. Did yep. that start, did you start building resentments for that against him? Like that it wasn't the same as yours or that it wasn't as maybe challenging or did that ever go on in your head? I don't think consciously, but now that you say that, Tammy, like I can see, you know, my first reaction was, you know, well, of course it was easier for him because everything's harder for me because <laughs> my life is so much harder than everybody else's. Oh my God, right. what a mini. <laughs> <laughs> No, I know this well. (laughs) I didn't think that I had that resentment, but I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Here's where the resentment came in. So, you know, like I said, I'd I'd quit my job just a year before sobriety. And then about, um, I don't know, six months. Oh, so I should also mention at the time, because I know this all all ties back to creativity, um, that in this window of time between between when I quit my job and, and the time I got sober in that year was when um, You Are Not Stuck came into the world. And so um, You Are Not Stuck is, I mean, it started as a Facebook page that just shared some, you know, little posters and memes and messages of empowerment, you know, and hope and choice. Because here I was, I was fresh off of quitting my job and I thought I was the most badass person in the world. And if I could leave my job, then anybody else could do anything. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was just, you know, so full of optimism and, you know, so sure of myself and just full of myself talking about choice, 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 to the point where a lot of people just wanted to throw me the middle finger and be like, would you shut up? You just don't know. Like you don't get it. You privileged little white suburban snot head. You just <laughs> don't know. And so I think the universe had, I mean, the universe had some stuff to teach me about choices and being stuck and suffering and trade-offs. And, um, you know, but, so but you created I, a community, right? I mean, did you found, did you find people that were also feeling like you were feeling? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, people who just sort of, were just sort of gobbling up those messages of, it really, it all boils down to empowerment and choice. I think people need to be reminded that they have permission to make some choices, that they don't have to do the same thing. All of those same aha moments that I had about, you know, I can turn around, I can take a different path, I can choose a different life, I don't have to keep doing this. You know, that all was resonating with people who were kind of hearing that for the first time, too. And, and were so, you, I have a question about that. Were you using like your PR background? to mm-hmm. sort of launch a platform or were you just kind of doing it for initially for yourself? Um, yes and yes. Uh, it mm-hmm. started off as an alternative to, um, I was using Facebook to promote my yoga classes. Mm. Um, so, you know, on Facebook I'd post about teaching schedules and, you know, Hey, come out Thursday, I'm teaching a 9:45 class here. And, you know, maybe some information about, you know, yoga asana or meditation or breathing or something like that. And then within that, I started weaving in all of these, you know, real optimistic, um, rah, rah, go get them tiger, change your life kinds of messages. And it occurred to me, you know, the people who are interested in knowing about my yoga schedule really not, might not be interested in this other stuff. So maybe I'm going to, I'll separate the two. And on a whim, just, you know, one random Saturday morning, I created a separate Facebook account 
for, um, you know, where I could put all of that kind of content. And I just called it, you are not stuck because that was a phrase I had heard, uh, a while back and it had sort of become my mantra and, um, I don't know. I just loved it. So I called it, you are not stuck. And within, I don't know, don't laugh within a couple of months. Um, you know how alcoholics have a completely inflated sense of ego? No, I don't <laughs> what? know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking okay. about, no. Becky. No, I so within, Help within us. a couple of months, I'd gotten like 500 followers and my britches were so full and big. <laughs> and I'm just thinking like, I'm so smart. And, you know, everybody's so proud of me for having been so brave and quitting my job. I've got a story to tell. And um, I thought, well, I'm a writer, right? I was a newspaper reporter and PR. I'm a writer. That's what my call, what I always thought my calling was. I'm going to write a book about my experiences. And I remember like in, you know, I started the page in July and by September of that year, I'm like, oh, I'm going on a little writing retreat and I'm going to write, I'm going to write this book. <laughs> I mean, I look back and I just think what an idiot I was to think. <laughs> I mean, just what an idiot. I just had Aww. my, my, my is a little bit skewed sometimes. I, I don't know if anybody else deals with that. It's a very loose relationship with reality. I like to call and it magical thinking. Magical thinking. There you go. Magical but one, thinking. one thing that buoyed me right there was, you know, so funny. You talk about Elizabeth Gilbert and not this. One thing that bolstered me right there was I posted to her Facebook page. And I just said, you know, something like, would you like to be part of our little band of dreamers? We share your voice here all the time. And we just think you're the bee's knees. And, and oh, my God, she liked my page. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, other people, like all of her people, started liking my page. And then, boom, boom, boom all of a sudden, thousands and thousands of people were liking my page. And within... I don't know, within a year, maybe I was up to about 50,000 followers. I was like, that's wow, crazy. that's, that's incredible. And I think now the number it's Facebook's just a weird animal and you know, the algorithms and, um, you know, all that backend stuff that kind of prevents your content going to the people who have decided yeah. they want to see it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Pages don't seem to work anymore, but mm -hmm. you're, yeah, yeah. Back but, when they did. I'm, back when nope. they did. So now I think mm -hmm. the community is something like, I don't know, 115,000 people. It's insane. Um, and there's another, I don't know, 17, 18, seven, this is, oh, not quite 20,000 on Instagram. That's insane. And it, well, it's just, you know, it was amazing to see that there were that many people who were interested in hearing the stories and then sharing their own stories. That was the most beautiful part. Yeah. And, you know, there were people there were people in recovery who were attracted to this page long before I quit drinking and long before I told anybody I had quit drinking. But I thought that was really interesting that people were resonating, you know, people in recovery were resonating with the messages of empowerment and choice probably more than anybody else. Right. And I think that that had something to do with my own decision to, to get sober and then later to talk about it so openly. That's so interesting that you say that. I mean, I was think when preparing for this interview, I was thinking about um, when I probably about when I was about six months sober, I started pouring through all of my old journals looking for clues. And the central theme of all of my journals since I was a teenager, well, or a young adult, 
was a feeling of stuckness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I really, really tie that in with my drinking. Like they were so enmeshed because when I finally made the choice, I've, you know, that kind of opened that sort of made anything seem possible after that, mm-hmm. where totally. I felt like I finally had choices in, in everything, you know, even mm-hmm. though the choices were always there. But, um, so, uh, you know, I can see why people in recovery would, would relate to that feeling. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, sobriety, when you choose, when you choose yourself over drinking or you choose yourself over drugging, or you choose yourself over, you know, overeating or over shopping or whatever the, whatever the addiction may be, when you choose yourself over that, you are free to choose anything after that. You know, mm-hmm. you realize I, I really can do anything. I really can. I'm not, I don't have to be what I was. I don't have to be who I don't want to be. I can choose to be this or that or not this or not that. And all of a sudden, every possibility becomes real. Yeah. Yep. That's... Because you're bigger than you used to be. You're stronger than you used to be. And your right. eyes are more open. You're, you, you have clarity. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. you start to realize, I mean, especially I have found, um, I found this, this is a feeling that grew in me over time, but exploded in me after I quote, came out as sober, that I don't give a fuck what anybody else thinks. Yeah. It doesn't matter that their opinion of me doesn't matter. They can judge me all they want. It doesn't matter. I'm free to be me and still make my choices no matter what. And so I'm no longer beholden to what, you know, how I feel other people are going to view me. You know, that, that there's a wonderful quote by Brene Brown. That's um, been so important to me, which is you can never do anything brave if you're wearing the straight jacket of what will other people think? Oh yeah. It's so true. Yeah. So true. And I'd, I'd like to say that I've conquered that, but I still feel like it's there. You know, I have a few people in my life that I still seem to care, but it's a learning. It's a, it's a process, not an event. I think to not care, not, to not giving a fuck what other people think. Yeah. Like, I think it's definitely just like sobriety. It's a total or recovery. It's a journey. It's, it's, I'm right. getting there, but it's important. And it doesn't ever go away completely. I mean, you know, of course I still care what people think. I mean, I, you know, I, I have three tattoos on my body and every time I go, I'm thinking, I can't tell my mommy, I can't tell my mommy, you know, I mean, <laughs> or, you know, we, we want validation sometimes. I mean, or all the time, you know, so that, that's another form of caring what people think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's me, true. please, like mm-hmm. me, see me, hear me, you know, any mm-hmm. of that. That's true. Well, I, yeah. when, when you, so, so Becky, since I didn't really know you before, I knew you were a friend of Laura McCowan's, um, mm-hmm. and I knew that you taught yoga in St. Louis and that's all I really knew. And that you were in the home group, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I knew when I invited you to sleep, um, you know, in the, in our room. And, uh, <laughs> I just, you seem nice. If you're a friend of Laura's, I knew that you could be a friend of mine. Um, but when one of our late night talks, when you were chatting with me about, you know, all kinds of personal things that we divulge to one another and, I went to bed that night and I got online and I looked up your Facebook page and I looked up your website and then I was like, Oh, and I woke up the next morning, I walk out there. I don't know if you remember. And I'm like, Becky Vollmer, 
I know what you were doing last night. <laughs> like, uh, good morning. I'm like, I'm like, like, you were unstucking me. (laughs) I do remember. And I was, and I can't help it. (laughs) I loved it. I was like, uh, but I didn't know what you, you know, I just, not that you were doing anything to me, but you were just, you asked a lot of really great questions that made me think about some things going on in my life. And I thought, yeah, I want more of that. I want someone to challenge me actually, or you know, I think I even took those, what's your love language quiz? You had me go in the room. You're like, go take that quiz right now. <laughs> go do it right now. And when you get home, you have your husband take it. And, um, I did, and I never had him take it still. I have to tell you <laughs> never has taken it. Oh, so you have homework. I still have homework. Oh, well, when shoot. I come for the intervention, I'll make, I'll make it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'll bring the Christmas trees and the love language. I'm going to add that to my to-do <laughs> list. Okay. But anyway, that was just funny because I was like, oh, this is what she's, t- this is what her work is. This is, this is, um, and in a way that feels so natural and organic and kind of beautiful and just you being you as well. It wasn't like this was this intervention, that word that you just used, but I just woke up happy and I was like, Oh, I felt a little seen and heard. And I think that is, you know, I think that's the magic of recovery is that being accurately seen and heard, you know, and I felt that with you. You're Hmm. not going to even know what those words just meant to me. So thank you. When you say that's what my work is. Yeah. um, I, you know, I, I never have thought of it that way, but I think I kind of like the idea of thinking of it that way Hmm. because people ask me all the time, like, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, if you ever sit down, pull your head out of your ass and actually write this book you've been talking about for four years. (laughs) And it's like, what I want to accomplish is that I, anybody who's ever felt as stuck as I did, you know, anybody who has ever gone through their day crying because they were miserable, anybody who's ever, um, you know, stuffed down their feelings or their dreams. Anybody who's ever drank themselves into a stupor because they didn't quite know how to deal with the reality of their life. You know, anybody who has, you know, stands in front of their freezer eating ice cream, even though you've got your keys in your hand and your coat on and you're ready to go to work. Like all of these are examples that I've done. (laughs) Anybody who feels like that, if I can do or say or share anything that plants a seed, that sparks a thought, that maybe they can make a different choice, then holy shit, I've done something, I've done something amazing. And it's not something I need to take credit for or that, I, you know, it's not, I'm not doing it for any other reason that I don't want anybody else to feel the way I felt. And maybe yeah. that's the control freak in me, right? I know what's <laughs> better for you. I can fix you. I can... You want to use your powers for good, though, I feel. Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I still have my evil moments, but most of the time. Um, well, I, go, go, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Can I say yeah. something? Because yeah. We, you know, I, we talked about not lying, not liking um, uh, loose ends. And yeah. I, I sort of left you hanging on a, on a thread of a story. Yes. Which was, you know, in between the time of quitting my job and sobriety, uh, feeling all of this momentum around you are not stuck and feeling like, Oh, I'm going to write a book. So the, the question that we had left on the table was what, you know, how did things unravel with Dave and me? Yeah. Right. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Right. Because you said that once the alcohol was removed, then you had to address a marriage and 
Um, I think yeah. that's interesting. And, and kind of where that started was um, Dave lost his job. So here we were, like I said, I had quit my job the year before, then we got sober. And then like nine months later, he unexpectedly lost his job. So we went from two great incomes to one great income to no income in the span of like 18 months. And, um, you know, that's a lot of pressure on a marriage, right? And then here I was, so, you know, we needed to make the house payments. So I went back to doing PR work and I was bitter as hell. I felt like I had finally escaped that and I had momentum with this, you know, this movement and, you know, helping other people maybe find that they had some choices and I had to shove it all on the back burner, um, so that I could go do some PR work that I didn't give two shits about. And I was really resentful. And, um, you know, I think then Dave got resentful and then things started to just get really crunchy between the two of us, which was odd because we were always the very best of friends. I mean, just the very best of friends. So supportive, you know, very affectionate. We didn't have a whole lot of sex, but just, you know, very, very good friends. And all of a sudden it felt like what had always been kind of you and me against the world it like there was distance between us and I was on one side and he was on the other. And for the first time in a 10 year marriage, we were, you know, we weren't on the same team. And Mm -hmm. so then that brought up questions about parenting styles and spending money and dealing with feelings and having important conversations and over-functioning and and under-functioning. And it just became clear, you know, he fell into a depression. I think I never really understood um, how much of a man's self-worth is tied up in being able to provide financially for a family. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that because I Mm -hmm. was always such a, you know, you know, I always thought those gender roles were so, you know, just arbitrarily assigned and that deep down we were really just all people and it didn't matter if we were men or women that was the first time in my life that I really did understand that men and women do maybe operate a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. At least our generation still. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was depressed and I was like, you know, I, I could see him having all sorts of emotions and I could see him not knowing how to manage them. You know, like he'd get I angry maybe. And I could see like his hands just sort of clench up and I don't even think he noticed it, you know, but I could see that physical reaction to an emotion, but he wouldn't say anything. And I was like, you know what, what would you think? Like, how about you go talk with a therapist? Like you, it, it seems like you could use some help just managing all of your feelings around what's happening right now, losing your job, money, stress. You know, we didn't have health insurance because of a snafu and, you know, just, and and we weren't getting along. And so he started to go, you know, talk with somebody. And I think that was helpful. Um, and then the holidays came, you know, we had a Thanksgiving, we had a Christmas and things were still just real crunchy. And we got into, you know, the beginning of the year and I just saw all sorts of warning signs. I was like, you know what? I think we need to, we need to take some action. We got to nip this in the bud. Like we're going down a path that we don't want to go. Um, what if we went together to a marriage counselor and he was on board and, um, you know, I, I mean, I'll just, I'll be very honest here in the, in the second session, you know, he said, I'm, 
I'm desperately unhappy. I can look back over my life and realize that I've probably been depressed for 20 or 25 years. Mm. You know, I can see that maybe I was drinking, you know, I was drinking as much as you were to kind of cover that up and function. And he said, but I'm at this place where I'm, I'm rethinking every decision I've ever made. And just like, you know, everything's on the table. And I remember just feeling flooded with empathy. And I, you know, I put my arm around him and I was just like, my God, I didn't know you were feeling this bad. I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, love you so much. How can I make this better? And then all of a sudden the little voice inside my head was like, bitch, did you not hear what he just said? He said, everything's on the table. Hmm. And so I, I just sort of looked at him and I said, you know, when you say everything's on the, on the table, I said, surely you don't mean us. And he just said, everything's on the table. Mm. And I pretty much fell apart in that moment. And yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, emotionally, physically, I mean, I just fell apart. How, 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 how sober were you at the, how long had you had, how many months or years, where were you at A with year. your sobriety? A year. Okay. A year. Yeah. One, uh, like almost, this was the week before what would have been our 11th wedding anniversary. Okay. So almost exactly one year. Wow. And then the next day, you know, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you're hurting. And he's like, but I, I need to tell you. He's like, I just, I don't love you. And I haven't for quite some time. Mm. And everything just fell apart because I did not see that coming. Oh, wow. I mean, of all of our friends, we were the most solid, the most stable. That, I mean, that, so I thought. And... Man, we gave it the good fight. We really gave it the good fight. We spent a, a solid 18 months in marriage counseling, and we just never came back from that. Just, you know, it just, it opened up so many things. And I think we realized maybe that, you know, we changed enough in the, you know, 12 or 13 years that we'd been together that we maybe wanted and needed different things out of a relationship. I mean, just just one small example, but that can show the the depth of the chasm. You know, I was here. I was a yoga teacher, you know, and really embracing the spiritual side of a yoga practice. And Dave was a card carrying atheist. He didn't even believe in the in the present. He doesn't believe in a soul. So just fundamentally, we were we had taken different paths. And in here with some clarity of sobriety, I could look back and I could even point back to like my yoga teacher training, which was, um, you know, eight years before. And I could see the beginnings of a split there. And but I just hadn't seen it because I was too preoccupied with work and kids and drinking and yeah. living and, you know, appearances that I didn't, I think I just didn't have the ability to step back and see those early fissures for what they were. Mm-hmm. And so, so um, okay. oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that that's kind of like the gift of like what, what Sandra was saying, going through her old journals, right? You're kind of excavating your past and pulling out clues and you can see that now only with the clarity mm-hmm. of sobriety and kind of where you're at in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realize what a gift, um, that was, I mean, at the time it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Um, I look back on it now with actually so much fondness and affection because, you know, for the first time in my life, my dear friend, um, who had just stuffed his feelings down for decades, he was able to get honest 
And that put him on a path to freedom and happiness, you know, which is something I, I desperately wanted for him then. And I still do now. Um, we are the best friends, divorced people you'll ever meet. We are the happiest divorced people um, you'll ever meet because there's still that fundamental friendship and respect. And there was so much freedom that came with, you know, all of the honesty that we went through to get to a place where we could say, not this, you know? Mm. So mm-hmm. my, you know, my last, not this moment was, uh, you, you brought up Laura McCowan, our dear friend from the home podcast. Um, it was just, what year is this? So about a year and a half ago, um, April of 2016, I was in Boston with staying with Laura because we were uh, putting on a workshop together in Boston, the first one we'd ever done together. And we were driving in her car and I'm scrolling through Facebook as she's driving and I come across Elizabeth Gilbert's Not This Post. Hmm. And I started sobbing and I'm like, you've got to read this. And I'm like, this is like, not this, this is it. This is my not this with my husband. Like, I realized that it was just, we weren't coming back, you know? Yeah. We just weren't coming back. And that was, there was so much freedom in just saying, in dropping the expectations of what right. we were, quote, supposed to be in terms of a married couple and just saying, we're just not that anymore. And we don't have to keep, we don't have to keep trying. Like, we gave it the good fight. We don't have to try anymore. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Becky. So it comes back to choices, right? Yeah. And courage to make those choices. Yeah. And that's, that's always so much easier said than done, but I think the work of it all, that's where all the, you know, all the learning that we're doing in sobriety and kind of when you have those moments, just, that's why I write or jot things down or keep a journal or, um, it's so that I can look back Mm -hmm. and learn from it or kind of see, see kind of I think what does Laura always say, like push off from here, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. this moment and then, and then what, right. And now what? Well, and I know and you talk, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Tammy. Oh no, you, I'm, I'm good. Well, you talk about the work in sobriety. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I'm coming up on four years and I said in the beginning of quitting drinking, it was just white knuckling. Yeah. And I spent a year and a half not drinking, but I was so far from being sober, right? You know, there was no emotional sobriety. I wasn't growing in any way. I was just not drinking. And all of those feelings were unresolved. And, um, if, if you, or if any of your listeners have ever tried to stop drinking, uh, without the help of, um, I don't know, without the help of anything. And if you're white knuckling it, you may have experienced the way I did, um, this deep, 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 hot, red, powerful anger. I mean, it was not just an anger. It was a fury. I had this fury in my body. It was in my body. It just lived right underneath the skin. I was so anger. I was so angry. And, um, I remember one day I had a moment, a really powerful moment. This was probably, I don't know, a year and a half into Dave and I trying to fix things. No, 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 not even, no, no, no. Like less than a year of Dave and I trying to fix things. And I shook my fist up at heaven. And I was like, you know, what the fuck do you want me to do? And the voice in my head 
just real friendly. <laughs> hey, why don't you maybe try one of those AA meetings that people have been talking about? Hmm. And did you? And I, yeah, I went that night. <laughs> I hmm. looked up a meeting. I looked up an AA meeting, and I went that night to my first meeting, and I thought it was just sort of ho-hum. I mean, I would give it a C. And then I was like, but I think I need to go again. So the next morning I woke up and I found a women's meeting Mm -hmm. that was, no kidding, around the corner from my house. And uh, that's where I've been every Monday at 10 a.m., you know, for the last two plus years. Not every week, but I try to get there. And um, I will tell you the difference between white knuckling without a program and just not drinking versus working, doing the work of recovery, you know, doing the work that leads you to emotional sobriety. It is, I mean, night and day is not a big enough contrast. Yeah. I have found that anger went away. I found, Mm -hmm. I mean, the peace that comes with the, the rigorous honesty, the peace that comes with rigorous honesty is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I would almost even um, speculate how good of friends you and your ex-husband would be right now if you didn't have some some emotional sobriety behind you. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. And he actually started going to meetings before I did. You know, so here was the guy who, you know, kindly only quit out of moral support hmm. for me, the one with the problem. And then I think, you know, he realized, you know, that might be a good thing for me too. And he was getting, he was getting enough out of it that it, that it encouraged, you know, he, the atheist, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is a spiritual program. And he followed the advice, which was, you know, take what you need and leave the rest. He left the spiritual side of it. You know, he sort of set that off to the side, but he was getting enough from the, the introspection you know, from working the steps, especially step four, for, you know, those of you who are familiar with the program of taking a personal inventory, um, boy, is that life changing. So you couple that with some good therapy and try, you know, that kind of normalizes what you're going through and put some corners and edges around why you, why you are, why, how you are. Um, it's life changing. Mm-hmm. absolutely life-changing. So that work has been um, really important to me in my recovery. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, in AA we talk about uh, attraction rather than promotion. Like mm-hmm. we're not supposed to go out and be AA evangelists. Right. Um, yeah, screw that. I'm a huge AA evangelist. <laughs> You've seen me in action, Tammy. Oh, I've totally I'm seen you in action. <laughs> and I loved it. And you know what? It was effective and... Um, and that person uh, could see it probably because of who you were and how you shared that message. So I think that's, you know, that's why some of us want to talk about it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know you have to go. I know we're, we, this was such a beautiful conversation. So and, good. Oh, I think our listeners so are going to be. nuggets s- I could have elaborated yeah. on more, yeah. but. This was great. You, you, are welcome to wrap up or I have another 10 minutes. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, about your unruffled toolbox. Um, Mm. if there's three things that like your go-to things, because the people who are listening, I mean, we don't know all the different lengths of sobriety that everyone has. Um, we also know that you're writing, I, or you share that you're writing a book. Is this going to be your memoir, Becky? Um, is that the work? 
We'll call it, you know, it's it's yeah, what do you want to call it? To the genre of a self-help memoir, okay. right? Which is, you know, sort of through telling your own personal story, other people should hopefully be able to extrapolate some things that would be helpful for them in their own lives. Yeah. So less a, you know, less a to-do list, you know, how to, how to get sober, how to how to get unstuck, but just more of a through the sharing of my story, you know, planting those seeds of making choices and, you know, creating that life that you really want. Hopefully that's what people will take from it. Good. Well, and, and I want to hear your three things, but I also don't want to be remiss. And, um, do you want to promote anything, share your website? You know, do you want to let our listeners know we're going to do a bio and an intro for you at the beginning, um, separately, but is there something coming up? I know, um, new year's Eve, I think you have something coming up that you want to promote. Yeah, sure. If uh, if anybody is in the mood for um, New Year's Eve plans and you're anywhere near the Midwest, um, hop in a car and come to St. Louis where I live. I'm going to be hosting a, a three-hour yoga practice, a nice candlelit practice um, at a studio here in St. Louis. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can find all the details on my website, which is youarenotstuck.com. Um, same handle for uh, Facebook, You Are Not Stuck, and IG, You Are Not Stuck. And you'll see, um, you know, if you if you go on the website, um, I do workshops. Um, I like to travel and go do workshops there. I've been to Boston and Dallas and Kansas City and um, you name it. Um, I, I'm still putting together my 2018 um schedule i'd love to get to portland i'd love to get to austin uh i'd like to go back austin to would love to have you i'll just go ahead <gasps> and that out sandra let's make it happen all i need is a <laughs> yoga studio that's really all i need so the workshop oh, that, that i do find. it's it's a three-hour um it's it's a three-hour session where we you know we do a little yoga you don't have to be an experienced yogi we just sort of do the yoga to get into the body Um, and then we, you know, we talk and we write and we share and we, I mean, we cry and we laugh. Um, so if, if any of your listeners, um, you know, practice at a studio where they might like to host something like that or any studio owners out there, I'd absolutely, um, love to get in a car, hop on a plane and, um, come to wherever you are. Yay. Okay. All right. So that happen. what are your favorite, what are your top three unruffled, you know, what unruffled is the calm, not agitated. What are the things that you kind of carry around that help you either creatively or with your recovery? Um, I think, you know, the things in my toolbox can be applied to both, you know, it can be applied to the writing or the, or the creating or whatever, you know, your individual creative endeavor is, but, and they also apply to sobriety and they also just apply to everyday living. Um, first one, it's, it seems so simple, but sometimes we forget. And that is just to find the breath. Hmm. You know, we, so many of us, we, um, we just get going in our day and we get wrapped up in talking or doing or feeling, and we forget about the power of just opening up the lungs, drawing in more breath and drawing it in deeper into our bodies. Right. So, um, I don't know about you guys are, are either of you, uh, quote mouth breathers or do you, do you do as we're supposed to do physiologically and breathe through your nose? I'm a nose breather. I'm not sure. I, I think a nose, but I don't, I'd have to pay attention to that. 
okay, well, pay attention to that. Those of us who are mouth breathers, you know, either habitually or who just, you know, when we forget might fall into that pattern. When we breathe through the mouth, um, it's a much shorter breath and it gets kind of stuck up in the chest, right? It just sort of, it just sticks up there high up in the shoulders and the collarbones. But when we breathe in through the nose, as we're intended to, right, the way the body is is created, the mouth is for eating and the nose is for breathing. Breath that's drawn in through the mouth heads kind of toward your digestive system. Breath that's drawn in through the nose goes deeper down into the lungs and into the rest of the body. So when you can take those nose breaths, those longer, more calming nose breaths, it is very quieting for the whole central nervous system. And you're able to push the breath down deeper into the belly, mm-hmm. which if it can live there, um, you'll find all sorts of physiological and mental and emotional spiritual benefits from that. You know, in yoga, there's a whole practice that's just around regulating the breath. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage anybody who's just, you know, feeling a little stressed, just just pause, take, you know, I don't know, take, here's a, here's a good way of looking at it. Take a, a really slow in breath. And if you can sort of stretch that out with some practice to a count of five and then same with the exhale, just let it out slowly for a count of five. That means one cycle of breath, one round of breath can be 10 seconds. So if you can take six of those, that's just one minute of breathing. Six deep breaths is one minute of breathing, and you will find there are some real benefits for that. So that's the number one thing in my toolbox. All right, I'm going to do that. About, I'm going to do that. You're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and pay attention whether you're breathing through your mouth or through your nose. Yeah. You know, I have always paid attention to that. I'm just going to throw this as an, as, as, an, as an aside because my father was a mouth breather, and it used to bug the fuck out of me. So. <laughs> I've, I've always paid attention to that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the next one on my list is um, this notion of befriending your sobriety, befriending your recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that you know, I've sort of given a little personality to the voice inside my head. Sometimes it's the really lovely one who whispers to me. She sounds like Sandra. <laughs> but then but then there's this one inside me who is such an asshole. And I have named that voice the pipsqueak twerp, right? Nice. Because it's just this little snot. And I've even assigned it this nasally whiny voice. And so I take it much less seriously. Well, kind of similarly, similarly to that, I have almost personified my sobriety I have made her into a thing into a person who I deeply respect who I never want to offend who I never want to let down who I'm you know unfailingly loyal to I've personified my recovery and she is one of my very best friends and I love her I absolutely love her and I'm not gonna let her down Oh, I've got her back and she's got mine. I love that, Becky. I love that. It's like your higher self too. It could be like, that's who I think of when I think of my sobriety is like my higher self. Mm-hmm. I like that. 
I gotta get, I gotta think of a name. <laughs> All right. I'll get back to you on that when you come for the intervention. <laughs> okay. So think of a name. Um, and then there's the last one. And this, this Tammy is going to get to your woo a little bit. All right. And uh, invoking, you know, the name of our friend Laura again. I've, I've written about this a couple of times recently and I just haven't done it any justice. But when I have my moments of doubt or um, when I am caring about what other people think or when I'm feeling like, you know, God, have I made a big mistake? Do I need to go back to a nine to five, you know, or just any, any of those doubts that I have? Um, I think back to her words and she, you know, she told me once and I just have never forgotten. She's like, you know, you can't fuck this up. You can't. Hmm. You just can't. You can try all you want. You can create a bunch of drama. You can, you know, you can sabotage yourself. You can slow yourself down. You know, you can stand in your own way. But ultimately, big picture, you know, based on what's intended for you, you can't fuck this up. Mm. And that's a nod to, you know, that's a nod to the woo. And, you know, we can call it whatever we want. I, I always resisted the idea of calling it uh, God. I didn't like God. You know, I came from Catholic school. Uh, background, grade school and high school. And it takes a long time to get over that, I have to say. So I didn't like, I didn't like the word God, but I, I, you know, now for lack of, for, you know, for ease of understanding for, you know, lack of having come up with any better, any other better word, I just assign it my own meaning. And I have, I just have this trust in something a whole lot bigger than me that I am I'm safe and I'm held. And it doesn't matter if I can plan two months from now what I'm doing on a Wednesday at 7 p.m., right? It doesn't matter if I know what the next steps are. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I say the wrong thing to somebody or if I, you know, make the wrong choice. Ultimately, there's a plan. There's a reason why I'm here. There's something I'm supposed to be doing. And so if I just keep going, I can't fuck this up. And the reality is, you know, when it comes to storytelling or art or whatever else is, um, you know, our creative outlet, nobody else can do what we can do. Sure, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert can write books and write the hell out of them. And Cheryl Strayed can write books. And, you know, Glennon can write books. But just because they can write books and do it really, really well doesn't mean that I can't, too. Mine are just going to be a little different. You know, I have these moments like, oh, I want to be, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert has has already written every good metaphor, right? Like none of the good metaphors. Are I can't possibly come used up with them all. <laughs> right. But I, I realize like I can or, you know, I can be, you know, I can be Glennon with maybe, you know, without some of the drama or I can be like, you know, Danielle Laporte without the tits and the teeth. Like I, I can do those things because I'm going to do it a little differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can't fuck it up. No. And I just have to remind myself that. I think we all have to remind ourselves that. And if we do, it's okay. It's temporary. It's temporary. There's a lot right. of grace in um, in understanding that this is all temporary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I sort s- of how I felt about my, my first tattoo. It was a nod to impermanence. I had hesitated. I've always wanted to get a tattoo and I never had because I thought like, oh my God, it's forever. And what if, 
you know, what if it's the wrong one? And what if nobody likes it? What if I decide I don't like it? And then I realize, oh, baby, that's just your, you know, your fleshy sack of stardust. Like, it's temporary. It's okay. Mm. Right. What was your first tattoo, Becky? Oh, um, God, we're going to call this. It's like Laura's here with us, and and she's not even here. I love it. Well, she Uh, is. (laughs) Uh, it's the same one that Laura has on her wrist. I'm usually not such a copycat, but this really, really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's on my left wrist, and it's in my own script, and it's just the two words, and yet. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is a nod to every contradiction, you know, every both and, every... Um, every second chance, you know, there's always something may happen, but there's always an, and yet, you know, I quit my job and yet I found my other thing. Yeah. Uh, my husband didn't love me and yet we're still best friends. You know, I was petrified of divorce and yet, you know, I didn't ruin my kids. My kids are still thriving. If we, you know, still a great family, just in two houses. Like it's, it's all good. I can't fuck it up. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Becky. You're, you have no idea how much I needed to talk to you today. I love you. Yeah, I love uh, you too. Thanks, Becky. Thank you, Sandra. Bring me to Austin. Okay, <laughs> wait. Let's do it. And then okay. I'll read you something. I'll read you the, the phone book. <laughs> it's a date. I'm asleep already. <laughs> Becky, when I see you next, I'm going to I'm gonna hug you so hard, lady. Can't wait. Okay. All right. right. Thank you, ladies, for having me on. It's been my deep pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by NMMD. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designer Chris Aguirre. Thanks for listening.